millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'm joined by Ian Leslie to talk about cutting human error in the NHS. George Eaton, Tim Wigmore and Lucy Fisher talk about the collapse of the Lib Dems and of the BNP. And I talked to Ian Stedman about whether we should call it climate change or global warming. Big week for political nerds, so I'm joined by a bumper crop of analysts. Uh, George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, Tim Wigmore, who is joining us to write some articles about politics over the summer, and Lucy Fisher, who is the Tony Howard Scholar. So hello, everyone. And I'll start with you first, Tim. You wrote a piece for us about the collapse of the BMP. So Nick Griffin lost his seat. The other BMP MEP had since left the, had left yeah, the party already. Yeah. Um, and the vote share they picked up was pitiful. What happened? Well, I, I think the... the their their su- success was was largely due to them exploiting a, a deep seated anger uh, amongst especially working class people in in Britain and a sort of a sense of sort of that the political class would be um, this kind of idea of left behind out, out of right? touch yeah. yeah and so many of of those have gone to Nigel Farage and his party now. Uh, and I, and I think also that the BNP, I mean, Nick Griffin is a leader. He, he managed to alienate pretty much everybody. He, he just in, insulted insulted people. His uh, appearance on Question Time five years ago was a, 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 a complete d- 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 disaster. Um, and I, I just think ultimately people, uh, people did not want to, um, many of those who supported them were holding their noses as they... As they, they voted for the for them. And yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting, and, and George, perhaps you can answer this, is whether or not is it too simple to say all those BMP voters just went to UKIP? In part, some of them have stopped voting. Some have gone to some have gone to Conservatives. Some have gone to the English Democrats um, or the the various other bizarre splinter Eurosceptic parties on, on on the ballot paper. But I think uh, Farage recognises that. Um, Griffin certainly recognises that they've um, they've um, 
been hurt by UKIP. Interestingly, one of the um, points that Griffin makes is that if you really want to stop immigration, then don't vote for UKIP because they've said they want to stop uh, immigration from the EU by pulling out, so stop the free movement of labour. But they've said they want lots of Pakistanis and Indians to come over and these skilled workers and, and, and we don't want them. We're against any kind of immigration. And that's an interesting tension in that um, you, you can see... UKIP is is making an attempt actually. I mean, there was a very interesting line from one of their strategists who seen that they want to detoxify the issue of immigration by saying, you know, we are in favour of immigration, but good immigration, not bad immigration, which is all of these Eastern European scrounges. Slightly reminds from... me of kind of Chris Morris and exactly. good aids and bad aids, doesn't it? Mm. It's, a, it's a slightly, but I agree with you. That's definitely a metaphor that's used. And Lucy, when you were at the Observer in your previous placement, you interviewed quite a lot of um, Black and Asian UKIP voters and, and candidates. How successful have they been at, at downplaying the sort of constant attack they get that they're a racist party? I don't think it's been a very sophisticated strategy they've pulled out. Um, personally, I find it very uncomfortable being dragged around by a press officer pointing out someone saying, look, you know, here's a black person, here's a gay person, you know, they're in our party. See, we're not homophobic, we're not racist. Um, that doesn't sit terribly well with me. Um, in terms of the Croydon Festival last week, I mean, what an unmitigated disaster. And so for anyone who doesn't know, this is when they hired a, a steel band and, and essentially tried to put on a street carnival, mm -hmm. which descended into chaos, and Nigel Farage didn't end up going. Yep, he was around the corner in a car, but uh, speedily drove off when the steel band refused to play, finding, uh, finding out that it was a UKIP event. Um, so I don't think they're really winning over ethnic minorities uh, at all. And George, is this, I mean, some of this, you get a lot of people, particularly on Twitter, saying this is the media's fault, that UKIP is a media creation. Do you think that's true? And if so, do you think that the media fascination with UKIP is now, we're kind of done with it, we're on to the big election now, we want to talk about the you know, parties that might have a chance of governing? Hmm. I think it helps them at the margins, but I think this line that some seem to be pushing, that UKIP's a uh, creation of the BBC is quite a dangerous one that UKIP has been around for a long time. So it began as a breakaway from the Conservative Party in protest at the, at the Maastricht teaching and, and the creation of the EU. And then it really came to prominence when it finished second in the European elections in 2004 and 2009. I think the reason it's gained so much since is because immigration has risen in salience as, as the number of migrants has dramatically increased. Uh, the Lib Dems no longer function as a protest party because they joined the government. Oh, well, it's funny and, you mention the Lib Dems because let's yeah. take a moment to, to dwell on their misfortune. Not in a nasty way, but in a, it, this has been the big story of the week. So they performed really pitifully in both the European and the local elections, losing, what, 150 seats at local level, slipping to fifth place in some places around the country, even sixth place, I think, in, in Wales. Mm. Um, and then there's been a kind of series of poorly executed manoeuvres against Nick Clegg. Where are we with that now? Does he look safe now? Well, he's certainly in a safer position than he was after the European elections, uh, largely due to the ineptitude of his enemies. Uh, so Lord Oakeshott was clearly naive in thinking that he could leak, or someone could leak those polls on his behalf, and that the, they, they wouldn't be able to be traced back to him. I mean, it was clear, everyone said, well, who doesn't like Nick Clegg? Who is wealthy enough to fund these polls, um, and uh, and who um, who is constantly briefing off the record? You know, all 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 the lines uh, trace back to Oakshots. I think he's safe because there isn't a Heseltine-style figure that the rebels have coalesced around. Uh, there's no one who's prepared to 
challenge him rather than merely taking over once he's resigned. I think the majority of MPs support him. And that's mainly because I don't think it's certain that the benefits of deposing Clegg would outweigh the costs. Uh, which is exactly the reason why Labour, for instance, constantly um, constantly uh, pulled back from, from getting rid of Brown because they feared something even worse. I wonder if another thing with the party is that they're just so small physically in Westminster that if you hear a, a Lib Dem source, does, you don't need to be too smart to work out who that probably is. And the fact also that almost a third of them have, are ministers um, of, of some sort, um, which means... You know, um, lots of people on the payroll, lots of them have been in government at some point, which means lots of people sort of, I think there's a per personally law to Clegg because he's the one who's got them a, a ministerial position or a cabinet position at some point, and he's the one who's given them a, a pay rise in, in, that, in that sense. But I guess so the million-dollar question for me is whether or not I think we probably all accept that Nick Clegg is safe. What Are the Lib Dems safe? What are the reasons now? How are they going to bat in the next election about what, why you should vote Lib Dem? I think it's... Go for it. Um, I think it's certain that uh, their vote share of 20% in 2010 would probably be halved or so in 2015. But the big question is, as you said, whether they can, in the seats in which they're incumbent, whether they can uh, use the sort of the power of their the popularity of their local MPs. And more than that, the sort of there's almost an incumbency that's divorced from the specific, from the specific MP, as we saw in, in Eastleigh, despite Chris Hoon obviously triggering that that uh, election there. The, the popularity of the, the local council meant that people were very loyal to the, the brand of the party. Um, so a bit a big test, that will really be the test, is, is whether people are, are loyal to, to their local, the Lib Dems on a, a, a local micro level, and whether they, they think that because their local Lib Dem councillors are good, their local MP works very hard, whether that's more important than Nick Clegg breaking various promises. Um, I think you're, you're right to say the incumbency sort of factor is a really big question. Personally, I feel that, um, in fact, the Lib Dems are really unfortunate to be losing so many big players um, next year. Um, Don Foster, Heath, Bruce, Ming Campbell, all stepping down, all really sort of important um, people for, for the central Liberal Democrats. So, so on, that, on one side, we've got the incumbency problem. But I also think, while I um, agree with um, George and Tim that, um, that the leadership challenge against Nick Clegg is over in the immediate sense, it's been a really mucky affair. And the fact that we have had two MPs, John Pugh and Adrian Sanders, come out against him, or at least sort of stirring up tension along with, um, with Oakeshott, um, other PPCs in Winchester, in West Dorset, um, you know, sort of saying he's got to go. I think that will harm the party. It just looks very mucky. The public won't like that. I think it, it, it does damage the image of the Lib Dems. Well, it's a very fast-moving story, so who knows, by the time we come back next week, Danny Alexander could have been made king of the Lib Dems. So um, we'll leave it on that note, and I say thank you to George, Tim and Lucy. I'm joined by the writer Ian Leslie, who's written for the magazine this week about one man's personal mission to end human error in the NHS. Hello, Ian. Hello, Helen. So tell me the story of this, this man, his, his name is Martin Bromley. Um, what, what made him kind of look into the idea about how he could pre prevent errors in the NHS? Uh, well, what, what provoked his, um, his uh, long campaign is, is that something really terrible happened to him. 
um, or, or more specifically to his wife, Elaine. Um, uh, a doctor, doctor's made a uh, mistake, uh, which led to um, essentially to his, his wife's death. Um, so his wife went in for a very, this is about sort of uh, seven or eight years ago, his wife went in for um, a fairly routine operation on her sinuses. She'd been having really kind of severe sinus problems for a few years. Um, and um, So essentially she lost, the, she lost the ability to breathe, her windpipe collapsed, and then they spent all this time trying desperately over and over to intubate her rather than going straight to a tracheostomy, just cutting a hole in her windpipe. Um, and I thought this was really striking as one of the things you bring out is the fact that there were people in the room, there was a nurse in the room who said, who brought the, I think she brought the set over, didn't she? She brought the tracheostomy set over to the doctors and they ignored her them because they were so intent on just trying to intubate her. Yeah, so you had these three very experienced doctors, combined experience of about 60 years between them, um, who became fixated on trying to perform this technical um, operation of, of intubation. Um, and the patient was being starved of oxygen. And the people that could see that this was a massive, urgent problem um, were the people on the edges of the room, like, like the nurses, who came in and, without explicitly saying so, hinted that maybe this was a problem, that something needed to be done about it. And the doctors just looked at them like, you know, what are you talking about? Um, and by the time the doctors realised that what was going on, it was too late. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And then you link this in the article with the fact that Martin Bromley was a pilot, and and every pilot when they're studying um, in in school, am I going to say in pilot school? I'm sure there's a proper name for it, but um, they they study air crashes because exactly the same thing can happen in a in a crash situation, right? Yeah. Um, so so when Bromley kind of got over the awful awful shot of this, um, he started thinking about it, and he started looking at it. he he made sure that a report an investigation was was carried out. And when he looked at the, the report that, that was submitted, um, all, all, everything became slightly familiar to him. He realized what had happened because he'd seen it, exactly the same kind of mistake being made um, by pilots in, in accounts of airline crashes. Because in the airline industry, every crash is studied in, in detail. So when you go to pilot school, when you're trained as a pilot, um, you really spend a lot of time looking at airline crashes and understanding why experienced pilots make those kind of errors. So when Bromley looked at this report of these doctors, he was like, oh, I see what's going on here. This was fixation error. I recognise that. People getting physical operation and losing sight of the bigger picture. And you talk in the piece about this strange kind of dilation of time that happens in a, in a situation like this. So people just simply don't realise. You talk about, I think it's Flight 173 is this famous example where they're running out of fuel and they're so fixated on getting the landing gear down that no one apart from the engineer, the very junior guy, says, you know, we haven't got enough fuel to make it to the airport. So yeah. what, what can be done? Because all, in all these situations, the idea that comes up is that one of the problems here is, is hierarchy. It's of kind of people being invested with authority and then they're not challenged. So how do you break that, that problem? 
Um, well, well, first of all, uh, y y people have to be aware of it. People have to be made aware that uh, when you're under a lot of stress and an emergency situation, you, of course, you, it's incredibly high stress, then you're going to make mistakes. It doesn't matter how experienced you are, how smart you are, how good you are at your job. When you're under that kind of stress, you will make these kind of mistakes. That's, that's the first thing to get people to, to, to recognize. Um, and the second thing is to get everyone to realize that the more people um, that feel empowered to speak up and say, hey, look, you know, this is going wrong, we need to sort this out, um, the, the, the less likely it is that these mistakes will happen. So, so the guys at the top, the surgeons or, or the pilots need to understand that, but also the people, um, the, the crew uh, or the nurses need to understand that they need to speak up when they see something going wrong. One of the things that I found most striking in your article is this idea about the fact that a problem that, like the one that affected Martin Bromley's wife happens in one in 20,000 uh, operations, which they consider a remote possibility. And then he says in, that, in the aviation industry, that would be, you know, that would be, we're really worried because planes are falling out of the sky all the time. Yeah, um, yeah, pretty much. They, they have very um, different perception of risk in, in the airline industry. Um, and um, I can't remember the stats of the top of the top of my head, but yeah, if they if they treated risk in the same way as the NHS thinks about risk, then you would see a lot a lot more crashes. And and you, you know, you'd, if, if you can imagine the airline industry, if there was a crash every day, just saying, oh well, you know, this is just the way things are. You know, these things happen. That's the kind of the equivalent of what the NHS is is, is doing at the moment. So there's a real disjuncture between the way the, the way these two kind of industries think about risk. And then the kind of the, the I think the lovely way that you bring this through to the inclusion is by talking about the clinical human factors group. So, yeah, would you just tell us a bit about what that is and what that does? So, so Bromley, who you know, as we've said, is was an, an outsider to, to to the NHS, has ended up making a big difference to the way um, the NHS thinks and and, and behaves. Um, in the wake of of what happened, he set up this uh, this group, which became the clinical human factors group. Um, which campaigns for for better understanding of these issues and for and for changes in in practice and behaviour in the NHS, um, and and it does it, it seeks to bring insight from the airline industry, but also from other safety critical industries like like uh, nuclear power industry, the rail industry, where they think about these things a lot um, to help the NHS get better at thinking about and dealing with mistakes. You know, trying to trying to make sure there are fewer mistakes, but also mitigating these, the the effect of mistakes when they happen. I was really surprised at how simple some of these things are. So you talk about the idea of just using a marker pen to mark the surgery site, and then you know the surgeon signing it, and that reduces the what seems to be the astonishingly high number of times that they accidentally take out the wrong kidney or amputate the wrong leg or all those kind of things. Yeah, wrong site surgery. Um, it, yeah, it happens way way too often, and and. Yeah, making sure there's a marker pen there means that the surgeon is much more likely to pick to have a to do it and not to just to leave that that bit out um, and and therefore less likely to to make a mistake. Yeah, some they're incredibly mundane these things, and that's partly what's prevented them from being practiced. Like checklists, you know, having a checklist of things that you must do in this operation, and that the whole team at the beginning of before the operation goes through this checklist. There's one, two, three, four, five things. Here's who's responsible for what. These these are the th things we must do. Just introducing that has, has reduced accidents and, and mistakes um, by, by a huge amount, just as it did in the airline industry. But because these things are so mundane and, and not very kind of cool and sexy, a lot of surgeons aren't interested in them. Um, and so it's been a kind of long campaign on part of Bromley and, and his colleagues to, to, to change the culture of, 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 the, of the NHS. 
Well, if people are interested in reading more, you've written uh, one of our longer, I think longer features we published this year, actually. It's a really beautiful in-depth piece. And they can, even if they want even more from you, they can read your book, which is called Curious and which is out now. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you very much, Helen. I'm joined by a science and technology writer, Ian Stebman, to talk about climate change, or is it global warming? Exactly. Um, there are, well, two kind of main ways that people talk about the way the climate is changing. Climate change is a term that's been used for decades, um, even before the science was really settled on uh, human-caused climate change. Um, but in the 1980s, as it sort of became obvious that we were sort of destroying the planet by filling it up with carbon, uh, filling the atmosphere with um, carbon dioxide and other sort of greenhouse gases, um, the popular term was global warming, and that's still like, like the more popular term compared to climate change. And that's because it is kind of gets across what's happening, which is that year on year the average trend is that the uh, Earth's surface temperature is going up, but. You get people burbling about mini ice ages and yeah. about sea ice and stuff like that, don't Yeah, because there are knock-on effects of that, which mean that in the short term, like the weather that we experience actually kind of might contradict that feeling. Um, and this is uh, something that a lot of um, climate scientists struggle with because there's this uh, trade-off between communicating science effectively and sort of being accurate and stuff, but also wanting to influence political policy and public opinion. Um, and this study came out from the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, which is a project at Yale where they specifically deal with studies in how to make sure people understand what climate change is and what's happening. Um, and they, they pretty much just went around asking people about uh, uh, very identical questions about do you believe in global warming or climate change? And they would just change the term climate change or global warming each time. And they found that people were way more scared by the term global warming than climate change. But that's the, least ac the less accurate term, which kind of raises questions about science communication because presumably they thought that climate change sounded neutral. I mean, you know, things yeah. change, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's sometimes bad. Sometimes it's bad, yeah. And you get people, as a result, saying stuff like, ugh, whatever happened about climate uh, uh, global warming, eh, when they see it's raining outside in May, like it is at the moment. Um, but they found some, like, really fascinating results. Um, asking the question, do you think global warming or do you think climate change is a bad thing or a good thing? Um, global warming was seen as a good thing compared to climate... Was seen... Uh, sorry... Global warming was seen uh, by a 12-point difference in responses as a better thing than uh, climate change. Uh, no, I said that the wrong way around, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> they asked the question, do you think global warming or do you think climate change is a bad thing or a good thing? And by a 12-point difference, people said that climate change was better than global warming. And there was a 13-point difference in the other direction where they thought it was a bad thing. So there's this dramatic difference that is expressed in results. This comes up all the time, doesn't it, in science communication? Because, I mean, I think you had a, the similar row, for example, over Brian Cox's series, Wonders of the Universe, about the idea of, is it dumbing the stuff down? Yeah. And his defence was very simple. You know, I'm making a BBC One programme that's going out, whatever, at 8pm. It's the kind of thing I want a smart 10-year-old, 12-year-old to watch. If you've got a degree in physics, then yes, you'll know the stuff already, yeah. but equally well, I'm not making the programme for you. And, but that comes up all the time. I think it's a really vexed subject, particularly for science and their, scientists and their engagement with the media, because they know that the media is traditionally, let's be fair, pretty bad with numbers. Yeah. Um, we're very bad at reporting sample sizes, for example. We're very bad at reporting the difference between correlation and causation. We love using words like something is linked to something else, which is yeah. so vague as, you know, <laughs> get you laughed out of town in a peer-reviewed journal. But I guess the bigger question here is about framing. Yes, yeah. 
so can you think of other examples where the, how the framing of, of, of words affects how we how we think about them? Well, the study itself contains a really interesting anecdote. Um, there's this guy called Frank Luntz, who was a pollster for the Republican Party um, during the midterm elections in 2002 under George W. Bush. And he sent this memo around to the Republican Party saying, we should call it climate change and not global warming, because we know that climate change doesn't sound serious. We have polling that shows this. Um, so I think politicians have been very um, obviously known this for a long time. And you can kind of see that in the rhetoric from both sides. When people talk about climate change, they might be seeking to downplay the risks. When people talk about global warming to make it seem more serious. But you also get that in terms of things like the bedroom tax, which um, the coalition government is adamant is the spare room subsidy being removed. Um, whereas, you know, the Labour Party is, it's the bedroom tax because people are losing money. And it technically isn't a tax, but a tax sounds worse. So, And you had the whole debate about the, the death tax and death yes. panels. And this idea of death panels, which is essentially, I mean, you know, that, that has to happen at some point in a, in a health service. Somebody has to decide what level you will fund end of life, what level you will fund an experimental cancer treatment and so on. But if you call it a death panel, suddenly it begins to sound yes. pretty spooky. Yes, indeed. Um, another example I found was actually from an episode of The Simpsons. This is the one where Lisa's the president in the future and Milhouse is her advisor. And instead of, uh, they have to raise taxes because the country's broke. And instead of calling it a tax uh, increase, they call it a temporary refund adjustment, which I think is quite a nice little joke about this kind of wordplay. Well, that's kind of what Gordon Brown used to do when he never used to talk about spending. He always used to talk about investment. Yes. Um, so I guess that we should probably all pay a bit more attention to the words that politicians use and, and maybe that scientists use as well, because obviously you can very much affect how people feel about a policy or about a phenomenon like climate change slash global warming by how you talk about it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.